Thanks very much, Andrew. It's uh, great, as I said, to uh, to be here. We're going to be looking at um, Joshua, just carrying on your series in uh, Joshua. We're thinking about stepping out, uh, following God, and um, moving with God. Um, I, I know that uh, next week, Roger's going to be looking at chapters 5 and 6. Um, let me just give a little quick recap on where the story takes us to. We'll, we'll dive into chapter 3 and 4 in, in a few minutes, but uh, there's some looking back stuff that I just want to deal with that really um, does set up what happens as they cross the River Jordan. So in chapter 1, of course, you've been reminded, Joshua is called and commissioned as the new leader of God's people. Be strong and very courageous, God tells him again and again and again. And, um, of course, right at the beginning of that call, he's reminded he's not Moses, which is quite freeing, actually. Moses, my servant, is dead. In other words, God's saying, you don't need to be like Moses. You're Joshua, and now I'm calling you. Be strong and very courageous. Uh, In chapter 2, which uh, you've not looked at, a very famous uh, passage uh, where the um, two spies are hidden by Rahab. Something interesting discovers. We'll pick that up. Uh, They discover in chapter 2. We're just going to touch on that. Um, Then chapter 3, the miraculous crossing of the River Jordan. As the priests, uh, the Levites, they carry the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. The River Jordan opens up and the children of Israel cross over on dry land. Chapter 4, as Andrew has read to us already, we've got these stones here, great reminders. Got a great message about stones. I almost thought maybe I should have done that this morning. But uh, And someone read that beautiful passage from Peter about living stones. It's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament where God says when the children of Israel are making an altar, he says, I want you to make it with stones that are uncut. Just, just whatever you find, build those into the altar. And I think, what a wonderful picture of the church. Uncut, broken, shattered, fractured, pointy ends and corners people and God builds us into his church and and that's a wonderful picture in chapter four of course we're not really going to look so much at the stones we're going to focus our attention on chapter three but those stones as well of course that are carried out of the river are then set up on the uh, in the new land and the reminders in chapter four Joshua reminds them whenever generations to come ask you why are there 12 stones here you can tell them what God did And sometimes our faith is a bit like that, isn't it? I don't feel the presence of God. I don't know his nearness. I'm really struggling. I'm putting one foot in front of the other. But I can look back and say, I know God has been faithful. There are 12 stones at different points set up in my life that show me that God has never left me and he never will. And that's what the stones were for. There are going to be tough times, Israel. Make sure you set things up. So you remind generations to come that God is good. And then you'll be going into chapter 5 and 6. In chapter 5, there's a renewal of the commitment of the the people to circumcision as a mark of the covenant. They have a time of Passover. The manna stops. And Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's armies. And that's uh, just a tremendous moment in, uh, in their journey. But the reason I want to look back a little bit, not just look at chapter 3, is because they've been here before. They've been here before. 
And I think if we don't recognize, when we get to the banks of the River Jordan in chapter 3 of Joshua, if we don't recognize that they've been here before, just about 40 years earlier, we may not learn the lessons that they had to learn going into the land this time round. Forty years earlier, Moses sent 12 spies into the land. You remember? Two of them, of course, were Joshua, who's now the leader, and Caleb. And we read about the outcome of that visit in Numbers. So I'm going to read from there, first of all. So feel free to turn to Numbers chapter 13, and from verse 26. And this is what it says. Numbers 13, verse 26. This is when the twelve spies return. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. In verse 28, there's a but. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We looked the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. They've been here before, folks. They've been here before. And those who left Egypt have died on the way, including Moses. That should make us pause, shouldn't it? That should make us stop. God is calling us to step out. Now, I don't know what he's asking you to do personally, or as a family, or as a church, but God asks us to step out in faith. And faith is the substance of things that are not seen. We walk by faith, not by sight. One day, faith will give way to sight, and then we'll see. I'm going to see Jesus. And that's fantastic. And I can't wait to the day I see Jesus. Because sometimes my faith is a struggling faith. But we walk by faith, putting one step in front of the other. Now what does Joshua discover when he sends his own spies into the land 40 years later? Joshua now, chapter 2, 
Again, just bringing the story right up to the moment where they crossed the Jordan. Joshua 2 and verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, this is now in Rahab's house being hidden, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. (coughs) Now then, (coughs) please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. I just want you to notice what she says. She says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. I just wonder, and I think it's not stretching it. I mean, it happened 40 years earlier. I wonder as they were on the border of the land, ready to step into the promised land, were the people sitting in fear and terror because they'd heard God had opened the Red Sea and let them cross on dry land, and they were there trembling, fearful, knowing that God of Israel is the God of the heavens above and of the earth below, and the children of Israel had less faith in God than the Canaanites whose land they were going to destroy. We heard. We heard. We knew. We know that God has given you this land. Forty years earlier, the people of Jericho had heard of the Red Sea crossing and they were terrified, which reminds me of a phrase. I wonder if um, my switched on here. Sorry. Okay, we go take it back one for me. Sorry, I'm not sure if I'm... Working. Don't worry, that's fine if you can do it. There's just a phrase I want you to have in your mind, and it's this. What you can see will always put you off. What you can see will always put you off. In fact, you could change it to what you can usually, what you can feel will always put you off. Faith-based on what we see, and faith based on what we feel, will usually lead us to disaster. In fact, faith fails when we fix our eyes on what we can see. So what about you and I? What about you and me? There are many times when God calls us to step out, but it seems too hard. You say, I'm not gifted. I'm too busy. I'm too shy. I'm not up to it. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too tired. (laughs) What you can see will always put you off. It will stop you. Now we come into Joshua 3 and into verse uh, verse 19. Don't worry about the PowerPoint. If it's uh, frozen or if it's not going to move on, don't worry. Is it? It's frozen. Don't worry about it at all. It really doesn't, doesn't matter. Okay, Joshua 3 verse 9. It says this. Joshua said to the Israelites, 
Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So we got we got the setting here. But you've got them now on the screen. The, the first thing to notice, I mean, this is a fantastic moment. Huh? Put yourself there. You're following the Ark of the Covenant. You are 2,000 cubits behind it. A cubit's 18 inches. So about 1,000 yards behind. Okay? Let the Ark of the Covenant go ahead of you. 1,000 yards ahead of you. You are to follow behind it. And then the uh, priests carrying the Ark, they will get to the edge of the water and they are to keep walking. Don't stop. Keep walking. Now, when you're a thousand yards behind and you see the water open up, that really helps. But when you're carrying the Ark of the Covenant and the water is in flood, you've got to keep walking. This is a fast-flowing river, not a sea inlet. We read here that at the time of harvest, the Jordan was in flood. And water that was normally 30 meters wide, if you've ever been to the Jordan, one or two here have been out to Israel, and you look at the Jordan, and you feel a little bit like Naaman. You ever, you know the story of Naaman in the Old Testament? Naaman looked at the Jordan, and he said, why do I have to wash in this filthy thing? Dip seven times in here. We've got great rivers compared to this. I mean, I, I've been to the, um, the, the site in the Jordan where uh, many people go to be baptized. And it, it's, there's nothing to see. It's about the only place where they've got deep enough water to do baptisms. And I think they've dug it out and excavated it. And, you know, there's nothing much to see. You can see that it's been a great river, and I guess at times. But when they crossed, we read here in Joshua 3, it was in flood. And a river that was normally 30 meters wide, historians tell us, is normally 30 meters wide and 6 feet deep, was actually about one mile flood plain at the time they came to it. So God is asking them to do something remarkable. No, secondly, they had to step into the water. Verse 13 and verse 15, the priests actually had to step into the water. It says as soon as their feet touched the water. In other words, they had to get their feet wet. They had to get their feet wet. But when the rest crossed behind them, no one got their feet wet. The Ark of the Covenant went first. Now they have the Ark of the Covenant, this box. 
covered in gold, representing the very presence of God with them. And of course, the wonderful thing about the Ark of the Covenant, when we get into the New Testament and we read in books, particularly the book of Hebrews, we see the symbolism that is so rich in the tabernacle and the Ark and what it contains. The Ark of the Covenant has this cover on the top of it. The cover is called the Mercy Seat. What a great name. And the Mercy Seat, once a year, is sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. And so the Ark of the Covenant being carried out ahead of them and the children of Israel looking at it and seeing it glinting in the sun say, you know, we're only going this way because the mercy of God is going before us. I'm only fit to cross because the blood of a sacrifice is on the mercy seat and I can follow. And so the Ark of the Covenant goes before them. And then we read that the water piled up at a town called Adam. I wonder if the town of Adam was really badly flooded, a bit like Chooksbury or Gloucester, you know, 2007 or whatever it was. All right, you know. The town of Adam was not a place to be when God did this miracle. The water's piled up, and it's about 20 miles upstream. Uh, historians reckon it says here in the passage a long way upstream it's about 20 miles upstream approximately from where people believe they crossed we don't exactly know but it piles up and the water flowing away flows away can you imagine I mean it's just amazing isn't it I guess the only thing that you could possibly um, relate to it is is if you'd ever seen a, a dam built and then a river cut off and, and, and the water is stopped, and the river flowing away just disappears, becomes a trickle, and is nothing. It's remarkable. So what lessons do we learn from this passage for ourselves? Number one, my faith will be inspired by God's word. Verse 9, it says, Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Don't miss that, folks. Joshua is not saying, look, Moses is dead, but I, I'm, I'm now the big cheese. Listen to me. Everything's going to be all right. I've met church leaders like that, and they don't fill me with any confidence whatsoever. Listen to the word of God. Here's what the Lord says. You know, if the Lord says it, folks, isn't it worth following? Isn't it worth doing? Here's what God says. In a book called More Jesus, Less Religion, Steve Arterburn writes the story about um, a tribe that were being uh, reached with the gospel many years ago in Papua New Guinea. He writes, Some time ago I read about the work of a Wycliffe Bible translator in a remote village in Papua New Guinea. <clears throat> when the opening chapters of Genesis were first translated into the native language, the attitude towards women in the tribe changed overnight. They hadn't realized or understood that the woman had been specially formed out of the side of the man, and without even hearing the concept developed or explained, these people immediately grasped the idea of an equality between the sexes and began adjusting their behavior to suit. 
The people heard, they believed, they obeyed, they changed, just like that. That change didn't mean that everyone in the tribe immediately came to faith in Christ, however. While they immediately recognized respect and the respect that God has for both men and women, the members of this tribe had their own hard-to-abandon gods and superstitions. One of their practices was to spit on the wounds of the sick. Funny, I think my mum probably used to do something similar, but she put it in a tissue first. Some of you remember that experience too. Not from my mum, I guess, but... uh, Their medicine men were known as the spitters. And they didn't want someone like Jesus to take their status away from the village. However, the attitude changed as more of the Bible was translated into the tribe's dialect. And when the translators read the passage where Jesus cured a blind man in a most unusual way, the medicine men pricked up their ears. The master spit on the ground, made a paste of mud, put it on the man's eyelids, and told him to wash it off, and he was healed. And when these tribesmen heard this story in their own language, they saw that Jesus was not against them, but for them. They found one of their own, a saviour who was also a spitter. And they came to Jesus because of this word. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that great? But just a simple engagement with the living word of God. Bringing people to say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. And it is simply the word of God. Reading it, hearing it, obeying it. We've been developing a number of um, what what we're calling values. Uh, The church where I'm one of the leaders in Hereford is called Challenge, Challenge Community church and we've got uh, eight challenge family values we've got them in sort of pictured on the walls in, in our coffee bar room and uh, and they're, they're eternal biblical values just stated in a kind of very modern way one of them is deeply rooted it's very simple deeply rooted and it means that regularly as we're teaching and preaching the word of God we remind people listen folks if you come to get fed once a week and starve yourself for six days you will be hungry you will be hungry you and I need to be deeply rooted in the word of God deeply rooted in Jesus and his word is how we express it and folks In difficult times, as you have been through difficult times, and I have been going through some difficult times. Last year, losing losing my father and um, going through difficulties and children getting ill and uh, losing lost uh, loved ones and facing terminal illness. A lady connected to our fellowship has got pancreatic cancer. She's going for a brand new treatment. Only 50 people have had this treatment in the UK and uh, uh, 25 of those in Birmingham where she's going but only one of those 25 has been successful the odds don't look good what do you do when you're going through difficult times folks if you're not putting roots into Jesus the danger is you will not stand when the storms and winds come it's the word reading it hearing it Obeying it. Secondly, my faith, based on the word, 
will be in Jesus who has gone before me. So they heard the word of God in Joshua 3, and then they were prepared to obey it. But remember I said they fixed their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that went before them. And remember on that Ark was the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat was blood that had been shed from a sacrifice, who meant that they could follow. They were counted worthy because of the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God, and they followed. Who do we fix our eyes on? We have this hope, Hebrews 6, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary beyond the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Friends, I I didn't have a, a lamb or a goat die for me. The blood of lambs and bulls and goats could never take away my sin, the writer to the Hebrews says. They were only pointing to one who would. John the Baptist seeing Jesus on the banks of the river Jordan many, many years later points at Jesus who interestingly goes down into the water. Isn't that interesting? Here we have the Ark of the Covenant, a picture of Jesus going into the river Jordan and thousand, over a thousand years later we see Jesus go down into the water of the river Jordan going before us. Why is Jesus baptized? Why is he baptized? I know there's lots of reasons we could come up with theologically, but I actually think it's a prefigurement of his crucifixion. He who doesn't need to repent for sin is identifying himself with sinners. He's going to go into the water. He's going to take my sin. What does John the Baptist say about him before he baptizes him? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is, folks. There is someone who has gone into the deep waters for you and me. If you're going through difficult times, if you're going through trouble, if you're struggling in your faith, if you're struggling with your walk, if you're feeling depressed or oppressed, can I encourage you that there is one who's gone before us. And he's already in. I've said it before. I say it because... um, you know, once you lose uh, your parents, and my mum is still alive, though struggling with her health, but uh, having lost my dad, you, re- you reminisce, don't you? You remember things, things that you'd forgotten. You talk with your, I've got two brothers, and we talked about my dad quite a bit on and off um, I- I- after his passing. And uh, I remember one of the famous sayings of my dad that I've quoted many times. He, he didn't vote. I-, I didn't agree with him on not voting, but he was a- 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 an absolute... Um, dedicated non-voter. Not because he didn't believe that people had died to give us freedom, but because he said, why would I vote, son? And I'd give him all these reasons. And he said, but my man's already in. It's a bit hard to argue with that. No, I'm not saying don't vote. The elections are coming. I, I think Christians should engage as salt and light making a difference in our world. So I still disagree with my dad, but theologically he was absolutely spot on. My man's already in. He's gone through the water. He's been through the trial. He's risen victorious from the grave. And he's ascended right into the presence of God. And as they watched the Ark of the Covenant go into the water, they had faith to follow. Why? Well, it was easier for them because the waters opened up once the Ark got there. Well, isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Remember we reading about Job, who said, if only there was a mediator to come between me and God, how, how better things would be. 
And we have a mediator. One mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. God's word inspires my faith because my faith is all about Jesus. And the ark went into the Jordan. And the Jordan, of course, often used um, by Christians down through the centuries as a, as a picture of death. You know, when I cross the Jordan, all those black Negro spirituals all about the Jordan. Swing low, sweet chariot, the English rugby anthem. It's about dying. As an Ireland rugby supporter and winner of the Six Nations Championship, you keep singing it. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. It, it's, it's a picture of death, or at least it's often been used that way by Christians. But I have one who entered into death for me so that in him I'd have life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life in all its abundance. The ark is not just the picture of Jesus, but it's the symbol of God's presence. And Jesus, of course, is the reality of God's presence. He's not a symbol of God's presence. He really is God's presence. Matthew 1, verse 23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who he is. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So listening to God's word, reading it, hearing it, obeying it, keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author to the Hebrews says, the author and finisher of our faith, he who began a good work in you says, Paul will be faithful to complete it. So keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus now, what does it demand? Well, it demands getting my feet wet. Now, I know that some of you could take task with me because most of them didn't get their feet wet. That, that is the point. But there's that lovely uh, book uh, written by John Ortberg. And when I was um, uh, really uh, quite unwell in 2005 with ME and struggling, wrestling with doubt and depression and all the anxiety that went with an undiagnosed illness, um, uh, someone gave me the book, and uh, I, I was as inspired by the title as the book. If you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. That's it. Folks, you know, it's safe sometimes in our world. Um, Francis Chan uh, wrote, a, wrote a book um, that uh, transformed my thinking, Rachel and I, terms of praying you know he says in the west he's a pastor of a large church in the united states in the west coast of the states he says in the west our greatest prayer in the west is for safety he says it's kind of idolatrous you may or may not agree i believe it's right to pray for safety but he prays he says we pray for safety at the expense of everything else god keep us safe what do we find that Peter and John did when they were taken and they were beaten and they were told, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore? They went back and they had a prayer meeting and they said, Lord, you've heard the threats. Keep us safe. No, they didn't say that, did they? They said, Lord, you've heard the threats. So give us even greater boldness to tell people about Jesus because there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. So that's what we're going to do. 
We're going to get out of the boat. We're going to walk on water. And we are going to trust God to take us. It may mean getting our feet wet. But I would rather be a Peter floundering because I took a step than a safe disciple in the boat who didn't know what it felt like. And I can promise you that I have floundered more times than you would care to know about. And I guess you have too. But that's following Jesus. Some churches are full of spectators. And other churches are empty because they were once full of spectators. If I really am going to engage with the work of the gospel and the work of the church, which is the body of Christ, then I need to get committed. We call it a challenge every church member in a ministry team. Every church member in a ministry team. But, but it just means that, you know, I'm not just a... Um, there used to be a code in the, the Brethren Church my parents grew up, and they used to talk about people. The, the downside of, of what they said was people were judged by their attendance at meetings. So you were spiritual if you went to all the meetings, and you were unspiritual if you only went occasionally. And so there were SMOs, who were Sunday mornings only, and SSMOs, which were some Sunday mornings only. All right? And uh, I used to hear that code talked about sometimes. But it's not about my meeting attendance. It's about my commitment to the life and ministry of the church. What gift has God given me and how should I use it to see the church grow strong in its witness in this community? That's what it's about. And so stepping out brings a whole new life. A renewed sense of faith and commitment to God. Deeper fellowship with others than I've ever experienced before. And a life that will bear fruit and bring joy to me and to others. Folks, can I encourage you? Listen to the word. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And get your feet wet. Let's just pray. And then Andrew will bring us a closing hymn.